are in is is super long. Um, and so instead of reading it ahead of time and then getting it rereading it as we go through the sermon, we're just going to kind of read it as we go um, through uh, the passage. Because basically, um, the passage that we are looking at goes from about chapter 30, um, around verse 25, and then all the way through chapter 31, which is a long chapter, 55 verses. And so... Um, so we're just going to kind of read it as we go. But let me um, pray for us um, once again, and then we'll dive into it. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for all your many blessings. We thank you for all of your goodness. Um, we thank you that um, you are a God who blesses your people uh, and pours out um, goodness and blessing to them. God, this place and what we are doing now is a blessing. We pray that we would not take this for granted, um, that we would recognize the, the importance and the significance of, of coming together on a weekly basis to, to sing and to worship and to pray. God, to hear your word preached. Um, God, we ask that um, who is, whoever is standing up here in this pulpit, that you would um, use that person, that you would use their words, that their words would be true and accurate um, to your word, and that the things that we say um, would be used by the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. Um, God, we, we beg you um, that you would use these things to make us more like Jesus Christ. Um, help us towards that end. Help our, our attentions and our, our focus and our understanding as we go. Um, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, shine a light on this passage. Uh, we love you when we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, I want to zoom in on a um, specific idea that we've already talked about a little bit um, in the life of Jacob, and yet we have not spent a ton of time just um, exploring this idea. And it is a biblical understanding of the idea of providence, of providence, okay? Providence is a word that we don't use a whole lot, honestly. In fact, I would bet that probably some of us would be a little hard-pressed to define exactly what we mean by the word providence. But it presents itself all over the place, over and over again in the Scriptures, and it is even tied, I think, for sure, to a lot of the themes that we've been talking about upstairs in our Doctrines of Grace study. Um, One one definition that you could have of, of God's providence is... The protective care of God for future eventualities, right? And so it is God doing stuff, planning things and organizing things in the here and now so that things work out the way he wants them to work out in the future um, to provide or to protect um, us from things. Um, It is God bringing together um, things according to his plans. Um, And so it is... um, you, you see this in all kinds of places in Scripture. Um, here's a great definition from a document called the Heidelberg Catechism, right? And, and the Heidelberg Catechism was just a statement of faith um, that, was, that was put out by the Dutch Reformed Church in, in um, I think, the 1600s. But it defines providence like this. It says, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hands, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that every leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruit and lean year, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, that all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Okay, And so it is this idea that God, especially in the context of those who are his people, is working all things together for good. 
um, and for the blessing of his people. Kevin DeYoung, who I mentioned earlier, his, his book is going to be the one that we're doing in our good little book study for Lent. He, he talks about providence this way. He says, God's power is almighty and ever-present. That means it is limitless and boundless. In God, all things live and move and have their being. Our God rules heaven and earth and all creatures in such a way that whatever befalls them, success or failure, blessing or adversity, even life or death, no matter what comes and no matter what the situation, nothing around us or to us or about us is the product of random happenstance. Okay? Um, in, in a simple way, you could say everything happens for a reason for God's people, right? He is working things out for their good, their ultimate good. So God has a plan for us, and he sees those plans through. We often, it's neat, when you look at the scriptures, you often, especially in the Psalms, you notice that people, events will happen. Sometimes bad things will happen. And the people in the scriptures will say, why is this happening to us? Okay? But you almost never see them asking the question, who is doing this? Okay? It's interesting. Like, go back and as you read, they're always saying, why are these things happening? But never who is responsible, because they know who is responsible. God is responsible for these things. And God is working plans out for his people. And yet, sometimes when bad things happen, we, we, we're hard-pressed to say, why did you let this happen, God? Like, we don't see the full picture yet. Why is this happening? Um, we deal with that in our own lives. Um, and so that, that idea of providence, I think, ties into the larger theme of what we've been talking about because it is something we wrestle with God over. It is something that when God does things and allows things to happen in our life, we go to the scriptures and we know from like Romans 8, it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. We have that promise in the scripture. And yet when bad things happen, we are still, our patience and our understanding is tried, right? And we wrestle with God to say, man, God, if you love me, how could you allow these things to happen? And yet the doctrine of providence teaches us to trust in God that he is working things out for our good. And so if we believe that passage, like in Romans, then God knows what is best and he is actively securing that for us. He is actively working towards that end, even if we don't understand how in the way that our life unfolds, um, In all the things that happen to us, God is intentionally tailoring these things for our good. All right? And so God does that with us. He does that with Jacob. And I think we see that in this extended section in in this passage of Genesis. We see God's caring, shaping, personal providence in the life of Jacob in a variety of ways. Okay? So that's what we're going to kind of talk about because the ways that we see God, excuse me, working in Jacob are similar to the ways that he works with us, right? The circumstances are different, but he's doing the same kind of things in our lives. And so we're going to look at that tonight. And so the first thing that we talk about is God's providence in where we're at and in our vocation, okay? God's providence, his His planning, his fulfilling the plan for where we're at in our lives and, and what we're doing in our vocations, okay? Um, God used Jacob's work to form him. All right, so look down at your, at your Bible in, in verse 25 of chapter 30. So it starts like this. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph... Jacob said to Laban, send me away, 
that I may go to my own country, my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know that I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, but now then, or now when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall give me nothing. Um, if you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flocks today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into the wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. And Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Okay? So it's kind of a it's kind of a weird passage. What's going on? It's a little bit difficult to understand because we don't we don't understand all of the of, of the language and the and the things that are uh, we see in that kind of agricultural cultural environment. But Jacob has had a rough time working for Laban, right? Laban has basically treated him like an indentured servant for these 14 plus years that he's been with Laban. Now he's going to work another six or so years to, to gain these flocks. And um, as he points out, like all this time he's been doing this, he's essentially been working for nothing, right? He has not been building up any, how we would say, equity in his own life, right? He's not been saving up things and building his own household and his own flock. Everything that he's done, all of his work has gone to benefit Laban. And so, um, and, and Jacob has been taken advantage of on all these things. That's a little bit when we're talking about this in this passage. It says that he asks for the spotted and speckled animals, but then after they make that agreement, Laban has the spotted and speckled animals removed out, and his sons take them three days away. So that, that when Jacob comes to the flock and removes the spotted and the speckled, there won't be many, right? And so even in this process, Laban keeps on trying to, to swindle him and trick him. And to to get work out of him for not much reward. And so Jacob has had to deal with all this stuff, right? He's had years of labor, um, difficult work, right? He's, this is farm work. This is not easy kind of um, work that he's um, participating in. And so God is using this, though, to form Jacob. Um, even though he's being mistreated, even though all these difficult things are happening in his work environment, God is using these things to form him. Imagine the character of Jacob we met six or eight sermons ago, right? That Jacob who um, swindled his brother and deceived his father and, and ran from from the family to save his life. Um, that Jacob, imagine if he had just been handed over the inheritance. If the whole story had gone like that. Instead of it going and all the swindling, if, if Isaac had just said, the prophecy says you're going to get everything, here's everything, you're the boss now, have at it. Like, can you imagine what that would have done to Jacob? I have a feeling like it would have wrecked him, right? That he would have been this selfish, self-centered, unscrupulous, covetous grasper 
and then he's all of a sudden given everything he's ever wanted. That would have wrecked him as a person. It would have wrecked his character. It would have wrecked everything about him um, if, he'd, if that had happened. But instead, God says, I know what's best for you. I know what this is good for you, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put you in this situation that will mold you and will shape you um, even though it's through difficulty. And so Jacob works for years, and he's humbled, and he's deceived, and he's treated with contempt, and he's swindled, and he doesn't get to enjoy the fruit of his labors. But that's doing something to Jacob, right? He's learning, and he's growing, and God is refining him through all that process, okay? And so I think that has something to say to us as a church, especially where I know a lot of folks in this in this room are, is that I know this. We have a lot of angst in our church about our vocational situations. Right. Um, There's a lot of people in here because I've had conversations with you who are in a place in your vocational life where you're kind of like, man, I don't want to be here. And I don't feel like I'm being rewarded equal to what I'm doing and I'm not making what I want to make and I'm not moving up the way I want to move up. And and I'm not doing the things I want to do. And and we have all these questions. And that makes sense. Right. For where a lot of people in the room are. You are. You're at the beginning of your careers in some cases, right? Or maybe you're in the middle of your career and you still have those same kind of questions. Um, That place where your ambitions and your desires are kind of um, bumping up against um, the reality of your workplace. Um, You you maybe don't see a clear career path. Like you're like, I know where I want to get to. I just don't know how to do it from here. And that puts a lot of angst into the situation. But let me suggest something to you that we can see from this passage. Jacob spent a lot of time in a situation like that. He spent a lot of time in places that he didn't want to be being treated in ways that he didn't want to be treated. And yet God was there with him and God is here with you and your situation. And I promise you, if we understand providence rightly, he is using that in some way. Right. He is using that to form you and to grow you and to mold you into the person that you're supposed to be. Um, God is working through those things even when you feel like you're spinning your wheels. Even when you feel like you have gotten to a cul-de-sac in your, in your work life and you're just kind of going around in circles. Even when you feel like you're stagnant. Or even when you're feeling like you're being flat out mistreated, right? You are being hurt by the company you're working for. I promise you the case is this. If you are one of God's people, then God is using this somehow. God has not abandoned or forgotten you. He knows exactly where you are at, and he has got you there for some reason. And that's probably different for every single one of us. I don't know the specific reasons he has for all of us, but maybe that's where we should start with those things. Instead of asking the question, Why am I here and why aren't things happening? Maybe we should start asking questions like, what is God teaching me in this time? Right? Or maybe, who am I here to teach in this time? Um, Who has God put me into this situation for so that maybe I can pour into their life or to be an encouragement or a gospel witness or something like that? To believe that God is providential is to believe that he has us where he wants us at all times. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we can't pursue other opportunities, right? Because those things end up being providential too. If we pursue other opportunities and God puts us in a new place, then he is moving us to the next um, phase or the next step or the next um, season of our life. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not about stagnating and and being accepting um, of, of not changing position, but it is recognizing that God puts us where he wants us to put us when he wants to put us in those things. 
And so we see that with Jacob. But we also see that it's not just his sort of vocational providence and, and place um, where he dwells providence, but there's also a providence that God has in providing for us, right? Giving us what he's called us to and fulfilling his promises in our lives. So look at verse 37. It says, Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, and he peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped and speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the stripped, and all the black in the flock to Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's. Whenever the stronger of the flocks were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flocks, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger would be Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, servants, camels and donkeys. Okay, so you go, man, I understand that passage even less than the first one, Ash. Like what is going on? What is all this stuff about like stripping these these tree limbs of the bark and then laying them in here and whatever? What's going on? Well, one of two things is going on, either something superstitious so, so Jacob is, is using some sort of kind of home remedy kind of thing um, to, to manipulate the breeding process, right? Um, and so some people think that's what's going on because the, like, the things like the, the fact that the poplar, the word for poplar in Hebrew is the same word for white. And so it's this idea that, hey, if I put these white strips in here, that it will somehow influence the color of the animals and stuff. And so some people think that's what's going on. Jacob's using kind of... Um, superstitious kind of homegrown methods, or maybe even something biochemical or something in the in the trees to induce a certain breeding pattern. That might be the case, or it might be very practical. And, and we that's probably the case when we look down through the passage. He's doing something using these sticks to corral the animals, so that when his animals are in the right place in the in the troughs. They breed so that he gets animals that are the right colors. And then when Laban's animals are there, he removes the sticks so they can just go wherever they want to and they don't get to breed, right? And so that's probably, it's a little confusing though. And honestly, most of the commentators are like, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. Um, um, but obviously what is intended is this. Jacob is trying to manipulate the breeding pool, right? He's trying to um, make this thing work for him so that he gets the animals he wants out of, out of this process. And it works. Verse 43 tells us that the man increased greatly and, and his flocks um, grew and became larger. But here's the key. The key is, is not the whole process of, of the sticks and the breeding and all that stuff like that. The key is to ask this question. Not that it worked, but why did it work? Why did this process that Jacob was using end up resulting in him getting a larger flock and Laban getting less of a flock? Well, it works because God willed and planned it. Okay? Um, Ultimately, the reason why this process worked out is because God is using this to providentially provide for Jacob. And so one of the things that we might have this discussion with and with someone who's a secular person, right? Someone that doesn't believe in God um, is to say something like this. Like you would say, um, um, take something as simple as success in your workplace, okay? In the secular world, when somebody is successful, 
the person says, well, the reason why they're successful is because they worked really hard. And they did it their own self, right? They got what they, they worked hard for, and that's why they're successful. But the reality is, is that we know that's not always the case. We know there are lots of people who work super hard, and yet it never clicks. It never happens for them, right? Certainly, as a believer, we would attribute a lot of that success to God himself. And we'd say, you know, yes, we worked really hard, but God blessed that. And God worked um, so that these things came to fruition and that we found ourselves with the success that we have. And so, again, the question is kind of like, so which is it? Did God do it or did I do it? Um, Well, the answer is it doesn't have to be either or, and it's certainly not even 50-50, right? It's that God uses means to accomplish his providential plans, And so God has a plan to bless you through your work um, or through your vocation and to provide for you and give you the things you need. But he does that through the means of you working hard and being good at your job and, um, you know, making extra effort and all of those things that come along with with work. Um, It's basically the same principle that we talked about upstairs earlier tonight. So does God change people's hearts or does us preaching the gospel to people change their hearts? And the answer is God changes hearts through us preaching the gospel to other people, right? Um, the gospel call goes out, and God's Holy Spirit uses that to change people's hearts. It's not either or, but it's not 50-50 either. It's God's ultimate decision, his providence, using the means of the world to accomplish his ends, okay? And that's what we see happening. Um, that selective breeding or folk remedy or whatever it is is not the cause of the success. The cause of the success is God. Um, we know that there are people, again, who work really hard, and it just doesn't work out. And again, if you ask somebody why that would happen, the world would say something like, well, if two people both work really hard and it works for one and not for the other, maybe it's chance, maybe it's luck, maybe it's fate, right? The truth is, we don't believe in any of those things as Christians. There's no such thing as chance, luck, or fate within the Christian worldview. There's only God and his, his will and what he's doing. And so Jacob realizes that ultimately um, it's not really what he did that caused this to happen. So look down in chapter 31, verse 4. Jacob recognizes that fact. He, even though he's manipulating these things with his own actions, he knows that that's not the ultimate reason why God has done these things. Look at verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my fathers has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. Uh, And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me, right? And so Jacob realizes that even though he has done these things to try to get a result, ultimately he knows they worked because God willed for them to work and that God has blessed him and his family through these different things, okay? And so that's a big step for Jacob, by the way, um, recognizing those things. Jacob is naturally prone to manipulate and connive and to stack the deck and try to win things for himself. And at least now, when he stacks the deck, he also recognizes that at the end of the day, it's going to be God who makes this work or not. Um, Sort of like it says in Proverbs, it says, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Right? And that's exactly what we're seeing in this passage. Jacob is doing these things, and yet he knows that at the end of the day, whether it works or not will be determined by whether or not God wants it to happen. 
And so God uses these things to provide for Jacob. And in fact, he uses these things to fulfill the promises that he's always made to Jacob. Right? So do you remember what um, Isaac had said to Jacob right before he fled, that blessing he had given him um, back in Genesis 28, chapter 3, 28, verse 3? He said, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply. And that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessings of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. That you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Okay? And so essentially he's, Isaac is giving a blessing to Jacob and he's reiterating the covenant promises that God has made to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob. And he basically says, God's going to give you and make you into a great nation. He's going to give you a lot of family. That's going to become a great nation. And he's going to bless you materially. And you're going to have flocks and, and, and wealth and all these different things like that. Right? Um, that's what God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now God is providentially bringing all these things to fulfillment. And so in verse 17 of chapter 31, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels and he drove away all of his livestock and all his property that he had gained and the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac, right? And so we see Jacob leaving this, this exile that he's been in, but what is he taking with him? He's taking four wives and 12 sons plus probably some daughters. He's taking female servants and male servants. He's taking flocks and donkeys and camels. And he has created for himself an estate, but not him alone, that God has been working in all these things to fulfill the promises that he always said he was going to make. Okay. And so God providentially has arranged this whole thing to bring these promises to fulfillment. Think about the fact that when, when Jacob took four wives, was that a good idea? No, it was not a good idea, right? There's been a lot of problems that have come from Jacob having all these wives. And yet at the same time, how has God used that? He has used those, those four wives to build the family that he promised Jacob he would have. That they have become the starter tribes of the nation of Israel that in 400 years time as they are coming out of, of the land of Egypt are going to count in more than a million, right? And so God, even through Jacob's messing up, and doing things he shouldn't have done is actually using those things to bring to fulfillment his plans. That's how providence works, right? That's not an excuse for us to go, cool, I can do bad things and God will bless me anyway. No, that's not what we're supposed to say. Sometimes we do those bad things and we suffer the consequences of them because that is God's providential will for us. Um, so, so, But we look at these things and say, man, God is working all things together for, for Jacob. Even the hard stuff, even the dumb stuff that he's done is, is, is acting to provide for Jacob and his people, right? That says something about how God works in our lives, right? God takes care of us. Um, I'm sure probably we could all come here today and tell stories of the ways that God has providentially provided for us in weird ways, right? Like all of a sudden you needed some money and you didn't know where it was going to come from. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, um, you get something. We were in a situation when we were in seminary where we, we needed a $500 check, basically. And we were like, well, something had happened and we didn't have the money for it and we needed $500. And there wasn't any way that we were going to be able to have that in the time we needed it. And guess what? I went to the mailbox that day and open up the mail and there is a check from Pleasant Grove for $500. They had never sent me money before. I don't think they ever sent me money again. But somewhere, some meeting, even before we had the need, 
Right. Because it's a Baptist church. So it takes months to get this kind of stuff going. Right. Um, There was, I'm sure, multiple meetings to get me that check. But way before we had ever needed the money, somebody had said, let's send Ash and Christie a five hundred dollar check. And had gone through a committee and gone through a vote and gone through this and gone through this. And then finally it had gotten sent in such a way that on the day that we needed $500, a check for $500 showed up in the mail. That's providence, right? God is working things out ahead of time for our good. There's a beautiful story of the, of the British orphan, um, uh, guy that started orphanages and worked with orphans, George Miller, or Miller. Um, and he, he has so many stories of God's providence. You could name a million of them, but a, a really cool one is they woke up one morning and they have 300 orphans and they need bread for the orphans, except there's no food in the place. They, they have no bread, right? And essentially the workers come in and say, we don't have breakfast for our 300 orphans. And George says, well, let's start praying. And see what happens. God will provide because God is a God of love and providence that he's going to provide for us. And they start praying and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And he goes to the door and it's the town baker. And the town baker says, I've got about 300 loaves of bread that I overdid a little bit. Would you guys like them, right? Um, Having never known that that was the situation, that, that baker burned the bread before they even realized they had the problem. And God was already fulfilling these things even as the problem arose, right? That's providence. Um, that is God working out provision and fulfilling his promises to his people even before they know the problem is there. So we see that in Jacob's lives, right? God has used all of these circumstances in Jacob's life to bring these things to uh, fruition. And then thirdly and lastly, God's providence works in terms of protection. It works in terms of preserving our lives and taking care of us even beyond um, forming us and providing for us. Okay, and so look at verse 9, 19, sorry. So essentially what happens is Jacob makes a run for it, right? Um, he decides that he's done with Laban and all his nonsense, and he tricks Laban and basically says, hey, we're going to go about three days this way and, and pasture our flocks. And then when he gets three days that way and Laban is over here, he says, let's go. And they just start heading for the promised land. Well, well Laban finds out about it, and he, and he comes after um, Jacob because Jacob's kind of snuck out of town, and that's sort of sketchy or whatever. So verse 19 of chapter 31, it says, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods, the, the little idols that he had in his house. Because remember, we've talked about the fact Abraham's family, his extended family, are not believers. God did not choose Abraham out of a group of God followers. Okay, He chose Abraham out of a bunch of pagans. And so Laban has these false idols in his house. And Rachel, probably still clinging to that, to that paganism, steals the idols. Verse 20. And Jacob... Uh, tricked Laban in the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. And when it was told that Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. And so then, so he catches up with him and then, and, and, and Jacob is, is, rightly nervous about how this thing is all going to play out, right? That's why he didn't even tell him that he was leaving, because Laban's not a... 
he's not a believer and he's not a rational dude, right? Like he uh, sort of is a totalitarian master of his domain. And Jacob doesn't know how he's going to respond when Jacob says, I'm leaving and I'm going home. And he's right to think that. We look down at verse 30 when they're in the midst of their argument. And Jacob's basically like, look, I took my wives and my children and my flocks. And this isn't any of your business, sort of. And Laban says back to him, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. Okay? And so Laban didn't agree with Jacob, right? He's not the kind of guy that goes, oh, yeah, that's your stuff and this is my stuff. He says, no, everything belongs to me and you've taken it from me. Okay? And so Laban has these sort of dictatorial ambitions, right? Um, He sees everything belonging to him and Jacob is rightly nervous about that. But when Laban catches up with him, it isn't his moral conscience or anything that keeps him from killing Jacob. Like he didn't show up and then go, oh, I'm, I'm going to do the right thing here. It's God that interferes in the matter, right, to protect Jacob. Look at verse 24. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. All right. And so basically what happens is as Laban is approaching, God providentially gives him this vision and says, I know what you want to do. You're going to go in there and you're going to kill Jacob and you're going to take all your stuff back. But you better not. You better not do anything good or bad to Jacob. You better just show up, make friends and leave him alone. Okay, because I'm God and I have determined that I'm going to allow Jacob to do these things. And if you go against my will, there will be consequences for that. And guess what? Laban realizes he can't make a move on Jacob. He can't do anything against Jacob because God is against him if he does it. And so he relents. And so, again, God providentially steps in and protects Jacob and his family, even when it looked like doom was imminent, right? Even when, when things were about to go um, bad. Um, a couple of weeks ago, most of you guys know that I was in a car wreck, right? And I was going 70 down the interstate, and a thing fell off a truck, and it shredded my tires, and I was on metal um, going down in Nashville traffic, um, hit the brakes, lost control of the car, and veered into a, uh, uh, what do you call those things? The guardrail, right? Um, that could have ended very differently, Right. Um, the miracle it was, was that not a single person was injured. Three cars were involved, including my mom's, who was behind me in traffic. Um, it could have gone really bad that day. I've been behind wrecks on the interstate of people going 70 who lose a tire and they end up rolling head over. I mean, flipping down the interstate into a ditch. Man, I just gleaned into the side and got out of my car and was like, oh, man, I've wrecked a car. Um, that's God's providence. Right. God's providential care of of me in that moment. Um, It could have gone any different number of ways, but it didn't because God was watching out for me that that day. Uh, Tomorrow, uh, another great story of God's providence, his protection and his care. Tomorrow is Washington's birthday. Right. The day that we celebrate Washington's birthday. There's this I love history and I love uh, American uh, revolutionary history. And there's this great story about George Washington. And George Washington is a person that I believe providentially was cared for by God. There were all these number of circumstances in Washington's life where he should have been dead. And yet he lived through these things to become the person he was in this obviously, you know, 
gargantuan figure in our in our national history and identity. He was at the Battle of Monongahela, which is which is close to Pittsburgh. Um, and this was during the French and Indian War, right? And he was on a horse and in this battle, and it's the French and the Indians versus the British, and he's still a member of the British. And the Indians see George Washington, know that he's the captain of this force, and are just aiming and firing away at them. And they keep on shooting bullets straight at him, and they never land. And, and uh, two horses were shot out from under Washington. And when the battle was over, he looked at his coat, and he had four holes, four bullet holes through his coat. Um, where it had just missed him by, you know, a fraction or whatever. The crazy thing is that the Indians actually knew what were going on and literally thought that he must be some sort of god, some sort of demigod, because they were like, we keep on shooting right at him, we're good shots, and these bullets never hit him. They always just go past him, right? That's, at least in hindsight, you've got to look at that and say, that's God's providence, right? God was protecting a person in that situation because he had greater plans for him down the road. But God does the same. You don't have to be George Washington for God's providence to work in your life. God's doing that for us now as his children, as his people, because he loves us and watches over us and protects us. And though even when something bad happens, which it will for all of us eventually, right, Even when bad things happen, we can trust and know that God is still providentially caring for us. He is allowing things to happen in our life that are actually for our good in every single circumstance. And so anyway, um, God protects us from outside evil, you could say. But you know what? Sometimes he protects us from inside evil. Notice something. Rachel stole this stuff from her father, right? That's not okay. You can't do that. And when Laban shows up, he thinks somebody in the group has stolen from him. And he says to Jacob, one of you guys stole my household gods. And Jacob's like, we didn't steal your household gods. You can search anybody in my um, you know, group, and if you find somebody with those gods, you can kill them. And this is his favored wife, right, Rachel, who has stolen them. Rachel does this little trick to, to, to um, keep Laban from, from finding the, the idols, um, and she doesn't get caught, and Laban goes away empty-handed. And you say, you know what, Like, that's providential. But the deal was, is it wasn't because Rachel was being a godly person. She wasn't doing the right thing. God even protected her when she did something stupid and foolish and sinful and that she probably should have suffered the consequences for, and yet she didn't. And guess what? I think probably, again, we can all tell stories of how that is true in our lives, right? Of how we have lived and done and acted in ways that there are many people who are in prison, who did those same things? There are many people who are in the morgue who did those same, same things, right? I look back to my college days and I go, there are many times when I could be dead because of my foolishness. There could be times where I was in a lot of trouble because of my sin and my foolishness. And yet, God providentially cared for me, right? He protected me from those things, showed mercy on me in my life, just as he shows on Rachel and on Jacob. Because he loves us and he cares for us. And so folks, a lot of times, get lost in this idea of providence. They get nervous about it and they start saying, man, how does God manage all these things? If he's making sure these things happen, how does that bear on my responsibility and my free will and all these things like that? And you know what? I think those are, those are not the questions that we should be asking in these things. That we should be looking at it saying, a loving God who intends good for his children has seen these things through, and he has brought me to safety, and he's brought me to provision, he's taken care of me, and I bless God for that, and, and thank him for all of his mercy in my life. That's where we should be looking at these things. And so the, the 
It's kind of the close. The doctrine of providence helps us in a couple of things, right? For one, um, it helps us to be patient when things are going wrong, right? When bad things start happening in our lives, we can look around and say, I don't know what God's doing, but I know he is. I know he is working, and so I'm going to weather this storm and see how God uses this thing. When things are going good... We can be thankful, knowing that God is the source of all goodness, right? All blessing that comes to us is from God, ultimately. And then, in general, we can be peaceful at all times, because we can know that whatever happens, God is working, and God will see us through to the place that he is bringing us to, because he is worthy of our trust. And so, I'll I'll quote... um, Kevin DeYoung, one more time. It's kind of a long passage, but again, I love Kevin DeYoung's writing. He always puts things in a very accessible kind of way uh, and in a way that kind of makes it stick. And so he says this, don't be afraid of the future. Don't be anxious about trials. Don't be nervous about blessings either, as if God will eventually wake up and realize you've been drinking spiritual Mountain Dew your whole life and start giving you spiritual broccoli to eat instead. Don't worry that he'll start balancing the scales to give you a little more suffering. There's no balancing with scales with God anymore. That's the thing about providence. Our Heavenly Father is always for us. He doesn't make you pay for the fun stuff in your life with more and more pain. He's only interested in your good. Always interested in your good. He doesn't vacillate between loving you and loathing you. His affections are upon you, and his providence is fixed upon your spiritual well-being in Christ. That's the story of the Old Testament, and that's the story of your life, too. That no matter what chapter you're in, or how you would have written it differently, God is at work. Alright? That's the picture that we have. That's the the. the the, the peace and the glory and the beauty of understanding a God who is working in providence. And so I'll, I'll close with this idea, and I love it. Um, it's an it's a, it's a idea that me and Adam Morell bounce back with each other all the time um, because it's something that is spoken to both of us. Um, Martin Luther said this. Um, things would happen, right? Bad things would happen. Good things would happen. And Luther's attitude towards all of these things is he said, we will see why this is the will of God. He didn't know what was going on in the moment. He didn't know how it would turn out. He didn't know what the ultimate consequences would be. But he was like, God's working. He's doing something in this situation. And we will see how this is the will of God. Amen? That's what I want us to do. I want us to see God working in every circumstance. And be comforted that even in our trials, God is at work. Because he is our loving Father who is working um, all things together for the good of those who love Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, again, I don't know exactly what the, the, the context of our, of our hearts and prayer for this thing is. Um, certainly it is that we would believe these things and, and trust in God in these ways. Um, but I hope that this is something that gives us rest and peace and freedom from anxiety. Not something that makes us ask scary questions that we don't know how to answer about sovereignty and events and free will and all these things like that. But that we rest in God's providence and his care for us in all these things. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, it is incredible that you love us. Um, It is incredible that you have shown mercy to us. 
But God, now that we are your children, we should, it, it should not be surprising to us that you watch over us, God, because that's what a good father does. A good father cares for and protects and provides for his people. A, a good father puts his children in situations where um, they will grow through difficulty and adversity and trial, that they won't have everything easy, but that through those things, you will make us into the people um, that we are supposed to be. You are a good father who loves us and is working for our good. So God, help us to do those things that we just mentioned. God, help us to trust you in the trials. Help us to thank you in the blessings. And in all things, help us to be content and have peace knowing that you are at work and that you are um, seeing all things to your good um, and perfect plans. Um, We love you. We praise you. I thank you for your providence in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing our closing hymn with us.